it's become common for many in our day to equate being religious with being superstitious. So if you have faith, if you believe in God at all, then you belong to a class of people who perhaps believe in magic, who maybe switch the lights on and off a certain amount of times just for, or whatever, throw salt over your shoulder for good luck. And those things in our kind of modern perception are all quite often seen as the same thing. And that probably goes back to centuries now. Our, Our world has been developing like that. The likes of the philosopher Immanuel Kant, he was of the opinion that any belief in the plan of a supernatural God, any hoping for that God to work in history, that it really was just complete superstition, that we live in the world of human reason, and that's actually what makes the world go round. That's what um, develops our experience of life and makes progress, and everything else is just a kind of wishful superstition. And that's the exact opposite of what we find, and that's the challenge that we have in the church today, is these things have been split apart there's the realm of the, the religious and the whatever you want to believe, and then there's the real stuff down here, the real business and transactions of life and materials. And that's not what Paul's saying. What Paul's arguing for, what we have in Ephesians chapter 3, is that what's really going on is a plan of God. The material, the everyday that you and I experience that's actually in a grand plan of cosmic scale. That's the real reality. Now, I have a couple of challenges this morning in coming to Ephesians chapter 3. One is that I've been packing up my house all week, and I haven't had as much ability to study as I would normally have, so I do apologize in advance if this is not up to standard. But the second one is that Ephesians 3 is massive, and I can't possibly do justice to absolutely everything in this text. But following on as much as we can from what Gordon was saying last week about the unity and the body of Christ being a building that's fitted together with God as the master architect, I want to look at what Paul's saying specifically about God's plan in the passage this week. And I think there's a few things that he really meditates on. And one of them is firstly that this plan, which Paul calls a mystery, is it's a mystery that's now being unveiled to all people, which is a new thing in the history of God's purposes and salvation from the Old to the New Testament. So I want to look at what Paul means by this mystery being revealed to all people. And then secondly, I want to look at just the scope of this mystery, because Paul says it's being revealed in the heavenly realms. And then thirdly, I want to look at the fact that we are the ones who are given the power to act in the midst of that plan. We're placed right in the eye of the storm, as it were. Well, first of all, Paul says that this is a mystery that's revealed to all people, and he dwells on that in verses 8 and 9. What's he talking about? Well, if we go back to verse 6, he says that the mystery is through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body. We kind of read through this and in a way gloss over it because it seems obvious, it seems self-evident. Of course, the body includes Gentiles. That's you and me. It wasn't always so obvious. Actually, if we can take ourselves back to Paul's original audience, it would have been pretty staggering that the Gentiles are included into God's promises. 
he is preaching and ministering in a world in a rich Jewish culture that has had centuries to develop. And they've got their own rituals, as any culture does. They've got their whole religious tradition, which is not just the law and the prophets and Moses' writings, but a whole bunch of other writings that govern their religious life. There's a power structure within that religious life. There are people who are the gatekeepers of that religion. And there's a strand within Judaism that's powerful that says, because of who we are ethnically, we are the people of God. We are the people that salvation is going to come through. And more than that, we are exclusively the people that God is going to work through. And into that, Paul is saying, no, that's not the case. That might have been the case for a time, but God is doing something new now. Jesus has come. And it's so lovely, so through, all through the New Testament and actually in the Old as well, the people of God are compared to a vine or a tree. And this imagery is picked up elsewhere to show that it's like a tree, and if you're good at gardening, you can sometimes graft in other parts of a plant at a tree and bring them together and make the one beautiful thing. It all grows together. And that's what he's saying is going on. That's what's happening. So you've got the old vine, which is Israel, who God worked through, and the Gentiles, which, and let's remember, Gentiles was kind of a shorthand for pagan, you know, the ungodly, the, the great unwashed, the people who've got no rights or inheritance in any of this. And he's saying, no, they're being brought in. They now inherit all of this. God's doing the one thing, and he's bringing them all in. I think as well, they would have still been wrestling. The Jew, I mean, every church that he's writing to is a mix of Jews and Gentiles, and the Jews are probably still trying to come to terms with the Messiah did this by dying. He didn't do it by coming with a sword and a spear and conquering the Romans and subduing all our enemies and building that kind of kingdom. There's so much about this that's subverting expectations. But he's trying to get people not to miss the wood for the trees. He's saying this is really what's going on. There's a a wonderful book that uh, Gordon and Ali and I read this week, uh, not this week, this year, called uh, The Vine Project, which is written by a group of Christian authors that talk about how we do discipleship in the church and using that imagery of a vine. But one of their big ideas is that so often in church we get obsessed with building the trellis, the thing that supports the vine, our church committees and programs and structures, and we're not putting very much work or focus into the vine, the God spiritually renewing us from the inside out and working within us. And it's a call back to what's really important. And Paul is doing a similar thing here. He's saying that the culture of Judaism, the, and he develops this argument elsewhere, the culture, the religious structure, all of that probably served its purpose and had a day, but it's not the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing is this plan of God, this mystery that's now being revealed. And in verse 9, he actually says that, 8 and 9, he says, God administers this mystery. The word that's used there is the word you and I now use for our economy. And an economy, we think of it as the national economy, the GDP and the deficit and all that sort of thing. But actually, the idea of economy started as a household thing. So, you all have a household economy. You have a bank balance, and you have bills to pay, and you have to negotiate and manage things. And that's exactly the imagery that's being used here. And 
Paul is saying that God had a way of doing this in the Old Testament. He managed it in a certain way, and there was the law and the sacrificial system and all of that, and he's trying to get across to them, but the game has changed, and it's God's prerogative to manage that however he wants. He is the governor of the Bank of England in this situation. It is up to him to decide what policy he is going to do, and now he has said these Gentiles, these people that were considered outsider, outsiders and pagans, are now included. And even more than that, it's not just them, and it's not just that we have to make some accommodation to let them in, because he also says that he's laboring, in verse 9, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. And he keeps calling it a mystery, because he's got a point to make. He's saying, it doesn't matter that this wasn't always plain. We think of mystery, and we think it's something that's really esoteric, and dark, and secret, and hidden, and you know, perhaps tied up with superstition. And the Bible doesn't really use mystery like that. All it means is, this is something that was not always totally clear and explicit, but it now is. What he's saying is, the way God has managed this, he's decided at this time, through Jesus, to lift the lid on what he always planned to do. This is how he's managing it. He's now taking back the veil, and it's clear through Jesus. He's going to make one people, and I'm preaching this to everyone he's saying. All are included. The scope is huge. It's all kinds of people. This is where we get our idea in the church that it doesn't, and we repeat it and sometimes don't even know the significance of it, that it doesn't matter where you've, you've come from. Your background is irrelevant. Everyone is invited to the foot of the cross and to bow before the Lord Jesus and confess their sin and find forgiveness from Him and be able to live a new life. Everyone can do that. There is nothing that disqualifies you or me. Nothing in our past can stop us from receiving the forgiveness of Jesus. But that was a scandalous idea back then, and we just take it for granted so easily. It's up to God to do this. It's His economy. It's His salvation. It's His administration. I was thinking about this, and I think children get this easier than us. We, we develop defenses and re- reflexes as we become adults, because Finley said to me once, just out of nowhere, he said, <clears throat> Dad, you're the boss of me, aren't you? And I said, yes. And I thought that was quite nice, just the way he got that without too much question. <laughs> and then he said, and Dad, God is the boss of you, isn't he? And I said, yes, yes, he is, absolutely. And he got that too, the fact that there just is a boss and it's up to him to do things. And people struggle with this a lot. We have to be honest. People, ah, I struggle with a God that could do A, B, C, and D, and I don't understand why or how he would do that. And our first century Jewish friends and maybe even our Gentile friends were in the same situation. They were probably wondering, we don't know how God can do this. This confounds our expectations. And Paul is trying to show them, look, it's up to God how he manages his economy of salvation, but it's glorious the way he's doing it, because you all get to share a part in it. And what do we do with this? In what way is this relevant to us today, this idea that God has unveiled this plan to all people in the way he's administered things? Well, I think it ought to remind us that you and I come under this new plan as 
Christians, Gentile Christians in the church. You know, we, the, our opening praise was from Psalm 107. You and I as Gentiles are able to sing that, and the promises are ours, that we cry to God in our distress, and He hears us because we've been folded in. You know, that's from the book of the Psalms that's called the Jewish praise book, but it's your and mine praise book now because of what God has done. But also that God has no ethnic favorites, and I don't think that message can be overstated today in the world that we're living in with growing animosity between groups and many of, a lot of faith in our, um, the structures of our society that we trust in has been shaken to the core. The fact that we worship a king who is not partisan in that sense and invites and calls all to this marvelous new plan of salvation in Christ, that's a message worth hearing. That's a message worth broadcasting to those whom we know. That's a message who, for some people who need hope today amidst the chaos of our world. And it's also a reminder to us that whatever other beliefs, um, politics that we have, allegiances that we have, that we come under the kingship of Jesus, that we come under this management of His salvation, and that really ought to be where our first allegiance is. Particularly as we're, we all watch from afar the conflict that escalates and sometimes de-escalates in Israel today between the Palestinian people and the Jews. And <clears throat> sometimes I get a bit weary. I think there's a wee bit too much overt um, political chest beating. I think there's some very bad theology around the issue of the Jewish people being the chosen people, and so there's unquestioned support for the likes of Israel. Now, I'm not saying we ought to politically support Israel or Palestine. That's not the point. The point is everybody can come to the foot of the cross and bow to Jesus in this new administration. And so, no one ethnic people are more special to the other. It is possible for a Jewish person to find love and salvation in Christ. It is possible, and many of them do, for a Palestinian person to find love and salvation in Christ. And so, I think this ought to govern us. Paul's words here, when we look at conflicts like that, or any other conflict in the world today, that our allegiance is to King Jesus, not any national state, not any particular interpretation of theology between Romans and Revelation and how the end of history is going to play out. This is a mystery that's being revealed for all people, for the benefit of all people. And as grace-infused, Christ-loving Christians, we ought to be the people who hold that message very clearly in our lives. So that's the mystery being unveiled here on earth to all kinds of people. But then Paul goes further. He says in verse 10, this is amazing. This is God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. I never spent that much time in this verse or idea before this week, but it really blew me away as I read it. The idea is that God has, in eternity past, planned this salvation, so He's not uh, quickly decided to switch tracks around the time of Jesus and go, okay, fine, we'll let the Gentiles in and we'll do… No, he's, He's always planned to do this. It's always been His intention to unfold this. And He planned to do it not just that you and I could be saved from our sin, as amazing as that is, not just so that we could have this force that is the worldwide church that people can find hope in, and all the benefits that have come from it throughout history, amazing as that is, but Paul is very clear in his teaching 
And this isn't very popular today. It comes under the superstitious category. But his teaching is that there's the world that you and I exist in and do business in, and there is a heavenly realm of spiritual forces, principalities and powers is what he calls it elsewhere. And that realm where there are dark forces as well as God's angelic forces of light is as real as the air you and I breathe. And his point here is that God's salvation now, the way he's doing this, is being broadcast into that realm on a giant screen so that they're able to see and take note. You remember the Ephesians are coming from a very superstitious background. There's all kinds of occultism going on in their city and in their world and their experience. So they believe in all of that. That's not the barrier they have. It's a different barrier to what we have. Their barrier is maybe, is it, Paul, is your God the one you're talking about just one among many in that great battleground of the heavens? And he's saying, no, he's far wiser than all of them. He has been managing a plan from all eternity, and now he's showing them who is boss. Now he's showing them who can really provide salvation to people. Now he's showing them who's real. But how does that happen? Well, in verse 10, we read through the church. It's amazing. So it's not that you and I have to be mindful of this and think, oh, I need to kind of show the heavenly realms how much of a Christian I am today. It's on me. Not at all. It's just so liberating because the very fact that the church exists, that is what's proclaiming this message to the heavenly realms. And think about it. The fact that it's overcome that initial barrier of, because the the Christian religion started as what was thought of as really just another Jewish sect, and it exploded and metamorphosized into something else. And then it folded in the Gentiles, not seamlessly, but it happened. And then it became the fastest growing force anywhere in the Roman Empire to the point where the emperor in about 300 AD thought, I give up. If you can't beat them, join them. I might as well become a Christian. And all it's done is grow and explode since. And okay, we don't see that so much in the West today. Plenty of other places in the world, it's growing explosively. And for a heavenly realm that is watching, just by the very fact of what God is doing by His power in growing His church, because friends, none of us can grow the church. None of us can save anyone. None of us can bring someone from death to life, and that's what the church is. People brought from death to life who share life together. And God is doing that. And by His action and His initiative, the heavenly realms are seeing the true God and His plan of salvation. But you know, I think this gives us a a real, it can give us a renewed focus for what we do in the church. Because that means everything is significant. You know, how amazing is it to think that just by you coming and gathering on a Sunday and making that choice, when most of the rest of the world doesn't, you're not just coming to church. You're not just going through a routine or a habit. You are choosing to put your stake in the ground and let God use you to declare to the heavenly realms that Christ is King and that He has redeemed a people for Himself. And we don't just evangelize and make disciples and get on with our programs and structures because it's the right thing to do or just because God commanded it. This gives a whole new avenue of significance to everything that we look to do. 
We can do it all in the knowledge that we are helping God to broadcast to heavenly realms who He is, His power, His goodness, His wisdom in working out salvation the way He has. Serving others, being a body, an unlikely body collection of believers who sometimes don't have much else in common except that we've encountered Christ's love, and then serving each other like He taught us to, it all has cosmic significance. So, the plan is a mystery that's revealed to all people, but it's not just revealed to all people. You and I are in the midst of a plan that's being revealed to the highest heavens. Paul ends this chapter and this discourse, although the chapter divisions came later, but for our purposes today, in verses 14 to 21, it's a pastoral prayer that he has for the Ephesian Christians, and it answers the question of, well, how? How do we do this? How do we go about being this people in the midst of God's grand, giant, cosmic plan? And he makes it very clear that it's only by the power of God that we take any part in this. Because in verse 16, he prays that they may have the same power that's subdued him in grace to serve God. He wants them to be strengthened in their inner man, their inner human. And he uses the word of riches, and the implication is that God has plenty to give of this glorious gift. Nothing is possible without the power of God and the love of God. God has given us Himself. He has offered Himself up in self-giving love. And the deeper that we swim in that stream of God's self-giving love, the more empowered we are. Sometimes it can be difficult, especially as we suffer, to wonder, I have so much going on. There is so much to do in the church that it feels like there's so much responsibility. And Paul is assuring us because he's riding in chains. He knows a good deal of suffering himself. And he's in chains and he's suffering, and in many ways he can't do very much. And he's talking about this deep and abiding power that is the center of his being, renews his inner man, and that it's his highest hope that it renews all of them. By extension, you and I in the church today means we can experience that same power. And no matter our circumstances, the trials and the suffering that we're enduring or going through, the power is promised to us not only to cope, not just to get by, although some days that's enough, but to flourish because we're the church, because we're the called and the redeemed people of God. And we take our place in the midst of this plan by finding ourselves in the very midst of God's love and power. May He bless His Word to us this morning. Amen.